The Athletic. The race is on, and as Formula One makes its way back to Melbourne for the Australian Grand Prix, we also had news that it'll be returning to Las Vegas next year for F1's first Saturday race in 38 years. But why is Vegas so important for F1? And looking shorter term, who is favourite for this weekend's race? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Mark Hughes and special guest Michael Laminato. Well, Mark, hello. You'll be jumping on a flight to Melbourne shortly. Last time in 2020, it was a rather futile journey for all of us, given the race never happened. But it's good to be going back to where, in F1 terms at least, the whole COVID-19 pandemic started, isn't it? <laughs> Not for that reason, but yeah, yeah. I always love going. I always love going to Melbourne, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't look back on that uh, on the beginning of COVID with fond memories. But uh, yeah, it's great. It's great to be going back, and um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure the whole of F1 is delighted to be going back there. Yeah, I was. I was more thinking it was a nice full circle to signal that we've got to the end of it or something like that. But it did sound a little bit too celebratory. Um, hello, also to our special guest Michael Laminato from Fox Sports Australia, who can offer the genuine Australian perspective. For those who don't know him, Michael's also the host of various F1 podcasts, including the F1 Strategy Report. And in fact, one of the last things. I remember doing before the world seemed to fall apart in 2020 was appear on your Box of Mutuals podcast, the one that you host, which seems a very long time ago now. But I do remember that the great toilet roll shortage was just kicking in at that point. <laughs> You're bringing back a lot of memories for me now, actually. I wasn't prepared for this kind of walk down memory lane. But yes, I almost feel a little bit responsible, to be honest, in the words you've put it, for bringing COVID upon Formula One. Maybe it would never have happened had you not turned up to Melbourne. Well, it, it's nice that you're taking responsibility. That's what we like to hear. But <laughs> but it is, it, it is great, though, isn't it? And I imagine Australia is pretty happy to have F1 going back because obviously Australia seemed to be quite, quite cut off from the rest of the world, even by COVID-19 pandemic standards for the past few years at times. Yeah, absolutely right. And I've got to say, the city, Melbourne, is buzzing for this race. You've probably already seen Sunday and Saturday are both sold out already, and that's never happened before in the history of the Grand Prix in Melbourne. Yes, the, the, the number of people is slightly lower than it's been allowed for, for COVID reasons, but it's still pretty high, around about 130,000 people, so that's nothing to turn your nose up at, and that's, that's enormous. Just walking around the track, it's in such great condition to see it, so it really feels like Melbourne is ready for it. And on a serious note, I suppose, to go back to that idea that COVID seemed to start with Forward Island's visit to, to Australia, there is a great full circle feeling about this, because even the Australian Open, which we had earlier this year and even last year, very restricted, very of their times, I suppose, of that COVID era, whereas this feels like the first real major event Melbourne will have that is properly back in the way it used to be, an old school style of event. So there is something really lovely about that. And yeah, there's just such a great feeling about Formula One this year. Yeah, it's, it's great. And there'll be no Novak Djokovic controversy as well, hopefully. So that's, uh, that, that, that should make it Make that sure bit, you bring uh, your passport papers in order, Mark, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's always, uh, always worth doing. But Let's look a little bit further ahead initially, Mark, because the big story in the past few days is that announcement that F1 is going back to Las Vegas in 2023. It'll be a Saturday night race that takes in the Vegas, the famous Vegas Strip and other famous sites. It's been on the cards for a while, but it's clear F1 itself has really pushed the boat out on this one to, to make it happen, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a big target of a Liberty right from when they first took over in 2017 that 
they've been so keen to make it happen that they haven't even bothered with finding a promoter to do a deal with and underwrite the race. They've done it themselves. So this is something Bernie Eccleston used to do sometimes. It, it, it further ensures the commercial success of the event, really, because they, they will be promoting it because, and taking the profits themselves rather than just taking a big fat fee and leaving the risk up to a promoter. So they, they're taking on the, the, the risk of the thing, fully confident they're going to make it work and making sure it will work with them um, with the promotion. But it 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 sort of indicates how badly they wanted this venue because just it's because it's Vegas, a world famous place. Even to those few souls who don't really know what F one is, it, 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 this this will put it on the map. So it's a major bullseye commercially. Um, it's on a Saturday, which means it's not going to go up against uh, the big league football games there on a Sunday. So it's it's been well well thought out, as you'd expect, of course. Um, so yeah, a, a, a very big deal. It's a seventy-fourth World Championship race that's going to be held not on a Sunday. Yes, I did go back through history and count it, but I think Kyle Army eighty-five was the was the last time. That's the kind of statistic uh, I, I enjoy. Yeah, I, I'm old enough. I actually went to a Saturday, several Saturday Grand Prix because I used to have them at Silverstone because the um, the village church didn't like all the noise on a Sunday. Yeah, the, the the British Grand Prix was a Saturday for for many many years. I think it wasn't until about seventy eight ish that it uh, that it ran on a on a Sunday. One of the most prolific non Sunday races, indeed. But Michael, it's a three point eight mile fourteen turn track. It's going to be pretty quick average speed by the looks of it. So, what do you make of it? Mm, six kilometers is that right for our for other Commonwealth friends? Not using the miles, but yes, it is very quick, isn't it? And that's, I mean, it really does feel like it comes second ultimately. The layout to the location, doesn't it? Because whatever kind of layout they were going to find for that place, it was going to look spectacular. And that was kind of the point. The fact that Formula One is right in the very heart of one of the world's most recognisable cities. But we can say it's going to be extremely quick, which is, you know, I guess coming off the back of Saudi Arabia, I'm always a bit cautious about when a racetrack tries to be the quickest or the most dramatic or the most whatever it might be. It won't be the quickest, but it'll be pretty quick. And I guess a big braking zone, particularly with these cars, does provide at least some overtaking opportunities, which is at a minimum what you want to see worked into that. But I think really it's going to be the spectacle of the whole thing rather than just how exciting a racetrack it is. Because I guess, you know, in America, the way the cities are laid out, you can't do much more than a bunch of 90-degree turns, can you? So I guess considering that, they've done pretty well to find some more unusual corners. Yeah, it does have a quite familiar track footprint when you look at the layout. You think, yeah, that 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 sort of shape. We definitely see lots of cart uh, races back in the day on that sort of thing or uh, other indie car races. But Mark, you mentioned that Vegas is is a great place for F1. So, do you think this could recreate the massive impact and success of the old Las Vegas Grand Prix of eighty one and eighty two? <laughs> <laughs> um, hopefully, it can it can do even better than that, Ed. I, I would I would like to think um, that, that that was a disastrous venue. And um, yeah, it was, it was around the car park, wasn't it, of the the, the Caesar's Palace Hotel. Um, I, I don't think that that car park's even there now. So yeah, I think um, I think we can do rather better than that. They they were um, yeah, it was a pretty sad effort really for a for such a, a, a an iconic place. I'm very disappointed to hear the car park's not there. It's always a shame when historic <laughs> motorsport venues are, uh, are no longer there. It's it's up there with it's up there with bits of Brooklyn's no longer being uh, being there, isn't it? <laughs> Hopefully, they can have some kind of opening ceremony where it once stood, perhaps in the multi-story car park now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it could be an underground one. Who knows? Probably a hotel with uh, with some particularly high class uh, look to it. But <laughs> but anyway, one interesting thing, Michael, is that there have been some people who've complained about 
America having three races. Obviously, they've got uh, the race in Austin and the race in Miami as well. So this this is the third. I personally don't have a particular problem with that. I think the USA is plenty big enough for, for three F1 races. But what, what do you make of that, particularly as you're coming at it, I guess, quite liking it? Because for Australia, it's I presume, actually turns up in quite a good time zone. It's almost a better time zone than our own race, to be totally honest with you. I think it's 5pm it's going to start on the east coast of Australia, given the 10pm local time, which is a beautiful thing, really. And it's going to be a Sunday, Sunday afternoon. It's, you know, the way it Formula One should be, really. I'm all for more races specifically in Las Vegas at that very specific hour, I think. And it was interesting just to see some of the commentary around, um, for example, in the Australian Formula One audience here. There was... I mean, there was certainly, yes, a great deal of enthusiasm for that time, but there was a little bit of a, why does the US have three races, but in particularly in the context of, well, does that mean which races are going to be standing aside to make sure the calendar can fit within its constraints? And I think that's really where a little bit more of that, if you want to call it controversy, is coming from. Because when you look at it, we've got three really distinct races in America. I'm really glad that We've managed to stick with a race in Texas, for example. I almost wish Formula One would lean more into that Texas angle and Vegas and Miami, two very different places, very far apart as well. So I think on the on the surface, on, on that way of looking at it, I don't have a problem with it. I think most people don't, but it's really that question of what does that mean for the rest of the calendar when we're talking about how happy Formula One's growing group of fans will be. Yeah, it's obviously an area that, that Formula One's really keen on, but Mark, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because it is a growth part of the world. I know F1 has had as many as three races uh, in, in the United States in the past, but it was always, it always felt a little bit more or a little bit less well coordinated, didn't it? I guess you've got to go back to what was it, 82 was the last time we had, had three, including the Vegas race, of course. Yeah, they were more individual deals that, that Bernie had done with those, those particular states or the promoters in those states. This is part of a, a, a planned strategy to expand the sport into that territory and these are all part of, of that strategy and and you know i wouldn't be surprised if somewhere down the line there's a there's a fourth one as well and when you look at the landmass and you look at the population and then compare it to europe you know that <laughs> we've got it pretty pretty good in europe i think um it's we need to be a little bit careful as michael says about how, which which events have to stand aside and we'll probably see some sort of um rotor system i wouldn't be at all surprised in the years coming up as they try to squeeze in these uh these big target venues but yeah it's it's um it's it's just the natural evolution of the sport it's just the natural commercial evolution and i don't have any particular problem with it at all in fact i'm uh, I'm, I'm all for it yeah i'm definitely looking forward to it and i think as long as the events are good and they are in markets that is embracing F1, which the United States currently is, the growth there is is significant, then, uh, yeah, definitely a, a good thing. Let's turn our attention a little bit more to the short term now, Michael. The first of your specialist topics, the Albert Park circuit. It's had some significant changes for the first time since the Australian Grand Prix moved back there in, in 1996. I like to say moved back there because it gives me an excuse to use my favourite facts about the fact that the old circuit that Sterling Moss won the Australian Grand Prix there uh, back in the day, actually ran the other way round. So uh, I've, I'm pleased I've got that in. But what are the changes that have been made and why have they been done? So these are changes that were sort of in train even before the whole pandemic situation happened and took hold. It gave us a good opportunity to make sure they were done before another race that didn't happen last year's Australian Grand Prix that never went ahead. Fundamentally, it's it's speeding up the circuit, making it wider in in key corners where we think there'll be great overtaking. 
uh, and just trying to improve, you know, that word that we're using so often now, the raceability of the circuit. And hopefully with these new cars, that'll have an effect because it's no secret that Albert Park has sort of been overtaken, let's say, by the modern generation of Formula One car. Its narrowness, which is the street circuit element, I guess, is just sort of not fit for racing in a park venue. So we've tried to make it a little bit more of a more of a circuit and less of a street, I suppose, is the best way to think about it. And it's really fast at the back end now, really super fast. We've eliminated, I'm terrible with corner numbers, but sort of the final series of corners leading onto that long back straight, which means when we get to the chicane, it's going to be so much faster than it already was. And that was already a pretty difficult part of the track, the highlight of the track, really. So the idea is that, I mean, the the characteristic of the circuit, I think, is going to be quite dramatically different as a result, even though a good half of it is, is fundamentally the same. Just that ramping up in speed. Uh, I've also been told the surface is pretty abrasive, despite it looking very smooth. So we're expecting that to, to play into strategy. And on strategy as well, pit lane's been widened. So we'll see a faster pit stop time as well. So just trying to generally update it to not feel as 25 years old as it is, I think, is the best way to describe it. It's amazing to think it's 25 years old in, in World Championship terms. <laughs> it seems like yesterday it, it first turned up. But it's interesting, Mark, the, the characteristics of the track do change a little bit. And one of the interesting things about, about this circuit is when you look at, the say, the tyre demands, it's a track that sometimes is sort of front-limited with tyres, sometimes a bit rear-limited. It, it's probably going to be a little bit more conventional and less likely to be one of those front-limited circuits with with those tweaks. Maybe that'll just slightly shift the, the bar a little bit. That's my feeling anyway. Do you, do you share that? Um, maybe, maybe you you've got um one less hard acceleration zone because turn nine ten has gone the old Clark chicane. Um, I, I I'm open minded on that, but um yeah definitely a, a a real change of character in the um the second half of the lap. Yeah, I think it's you have to be open minded on tires there because it does sort of flip from year to year depending on the on on the balance of the uh, the tires. So that'll be one of the interesting questions there. And Mark Albert Park, it is a very different circuit to what we've seen this year in Bahrain and Jeddah. That's our data set so far. So based on what you've learned about the front runners so far, do you have any feeling on which of Red Bull or Ferrari could be better suited to it, or is it it just into the unknown still? Well, the longer the straight, the better it would seem to be for Red Bull relative to Ferrari. Um, so, yeah, on, on the face of it, I would say the circuit changes may have done Red Bull a favour. Uh, what we've seen so far is a Red Bull which prefers to be run with a lower wing level than the Ferrari, and I don't think that's just a, a tactical team choice to give them a more raceable car. I think that's where the car's sweet spots currently is. Um, it's got good underbody downforce, and so it can do the lap time with relatively little wing. It could also be that it has an underlying porpoising problem and it's running the low wing just to keep it from that threshold. So that's where it differs. The Ferrari accelerates better, and we've seen that very clearly at both tracks so far. Pulls harder from low and medium revs, so it's quicker down the early parts of the straights. And if you look at Bahrain, it was only the pit straight of the, the three straights there. Three, one, two, three, yeah, four straights there. Um, that it was only it was only the pit straight that was long enough for the Red Bull's lower wing to claw back what the Ferrari had taken from it in the early part of the straight. Um, so even though the Red Bull looked much the faster straight line car, if you just judged it from speed through the speed trap at the end of the straight, in actual fact, the two cars were taking about the same amount of time to get from the beginning of the straight to the end. Um, I think the new layout of Albert Park where will that put the two cars in terms of ideal wing level? 
that's probably going to be the decider of which of the two cars worth. But I think it's worth pointing out that Jeddah, which is a very low downforce track, almost down to Monza levels, the Ferrari was still super quick there with a relatively big wing. So maybe that will turn out, maybe in hindsight, Jeddah will turn out to have been one of their weaker tracks. So I don't think it's, um, I don't think we can call it with much confidence at the moment. It's, um, and it's not necessarily going to be a static thing because these cars are being fine-tuned all the time as the, the new knowledge is uncovered about the, the new era of tech rigs. And of course, when you've got two cars that have relatively similar performance, it's always very, very difficult to be absolutely sure. We saw that last season, didn't we, where we always had an idea of which of Red Bull and Mercedes would be quicker, and often it would be a surprise because it's tiny swings that make all the difference. But, uh, Michael, as you've explained, the hope is that the, the track would be good for racing. So I guess the hope's pretty high for another Ferrari v Red Bull battle given what we've seen in the, in the first two races i guess that would be a great endorsement of the regs as well for f1 if we go to a circuit like albert park that hasn't always been the best for wheel-to-wheel racing and it really puts on a show like we saw in bahrain and Jeddah, which are circuits that probably in their inherent configuration are a little bit more conducive to, to that sort of thing yeah i mean that's exactly the aim i know they're considering four drs zones as well which i guess that's an interesting question going forward as well isn't it the way the drs will be deployed for the rest of the year based on the way everything panned out in saudi arabia i guess the effectiveness of it there but that is really the big test i mean it's a combination of car and 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 tracks so i guess we may not necessarily be able to deduce it one way or another i feel like we can need more tracks before we know how effective these cars are in terms of helping follow but it is more of a there's a bit more momentum in this track now, I suppose. It's a little bit less uh, hard on the brakes and then breaking up, uh, particularly in that first sector and last sector. Even the last sector, which is relatively tight, uh, will break up the field a little bit less. So, I mean, I'm optimistic that the changes should work out, but, you know, it, Formula One has a habit of surprising in that respect, doesn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely. What is interesting, though, is although there, there will be the two consecutive DRS zones on the first, the, the, the start-finish straight and then that run-up to, to turn three, Based on what we've seen there in the past, that's not one where somebody makes a move in the first zone and then they're repassed in the second, is it? So we might see a different kind of racing if it is the same again that you use that first zone to kind of get close and then you make your move into three. So I guess, Michael, it could be a slightly different form of, of DRS race if we do have another Verstappen v Leclerc fight up front. Well, it just means we won't be battling so much over this detection point, right? I, I, don't, I think there is maybe something to be said about having almost one detection point for the lap or let's say for the first two if they're nearby each other, the two DRS zones, and then if it comes up later in the lap, having another one because that's really what we saw in Saudi Arabia, wasn't it? You'd have one bite and then you get to sort of reset the situation or in Bahrain as well, of course. Uh, but whereas having one, essentially just one long one broken up fundamentally by the first turn chicane, it feels a little bit, I, I suppose you could say fairer. I don't know. I guess there's different perspectives on this because you could argue as well that, I mean, the battle that we did get in Saudi Arabia, even if it did seem a little bit, you know, funny to be arguing over a DRS detection point fundamentally, did give us a really interesting long running battle. So maybe that is the better way. Yeah, it's a strange question, isn't it, Mark? Because on the one hand, you want to see two drivers going at it, trying to be ahead of each other all the time but at the same time having a little bit of intelligence and a little bit of strategy in it does make it quite interesting as well but then again in that situation because it's so obvious what you wanted to do in Jeddah in terms of where you wanted to be that perhaps made the battle a bit less three-dimensional than it might have been yeah it was it did seem a little bit contrived especially when Verstappen's actually closing his DRS to make sure he didn't get to the DRS line first 
You know, he's actually slowing down. He's blending out of the throttle and, and shutting off the DRS because he doesn't want to go too fast. Um, of course, they're only able to do that because they had a big gap to third place. It would have been quite funny if the third place guy just zapped them both while they were trying to do that. But, um, yeah, I think it, it probably needs a little bit of a tweak because that just doesn't feel quite right. You know, this sort of tactical pursuit is sort of, you know, like like a before the 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 sprint on 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 the board tracks of a cycling race you know you have that sort of tactical moment where they're t- deciding who's going to be the first to go and who's going to get the, the, the slipstream it, it it was a bit like that and yeah it brought an interesting element to those two races and i'm sure we're going to see it again in some places depending on the layout but uh, yeah for, for me it didn't feel quite it didn't sit quite right i think it needs some tweak Maybe we could have a surprise detection point where we don't tell anyone yes. where it is and that way they can't argue over it. <laughs> they need to know at some point, surely. Yeah. Well, yes. We could even have someone ringing a bell, much like in a velodrome when they when they. Yeah, yeah. 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 That definitely would add some unpredictability to that. <laughs> the, the, one, the one thing I do quite like about those DRS detection races is, is it's allowed whoever wins to be very smug about it at the end of the race, isn't it? <laughs> we saw Leclerc saying, yeah, I was very clever in Bahrain, and yeah. Max saying, yeah, I was clever here. So <laughs> get drivers trying to declare who's out-clevered each other. But uh, at some point, somebody will probably uh, trip themselves up trying to trying to do that. But, uh, but yeah, the, the great thing is, though, Michael, is we have got what's just starting to shape up as a, as a pretty great championship battle between Leclerc and, and Verstappen. It's still early days and there's obviously Carlos Sainz in there. Checo Perez could could have won in, in Jeddah had things panned out differently. So it is good to see two great drivers going at it. And also, I'm personally enjoying seeing Leclerc in a position to be in a championship fight for the, for the first time. So what are you learning about those two and how much are you enjoying seeing them up front? It's funny, isn't it, that all of a sudden Max Verstappen's gone from the from absolutely the young upstart, right, up against Lewis Hamilton, who has so much more experience and obviously is so much better decorated than he is, to being now the guy who's who's someone's attempting to depose him now. It's such a, an interesting change in dynamic, but there is a real youthfulness about it now, isn't there? And who knows how this progresses if this is what we have for the rest of the seasons? If it is a duel uh, between these two guys, how the the differences between them evolve, but there is just such a youthfulness about this this battle now. I mean, I thought it was really interesting, and yes, this is, I think, a sign of how early it is in a potential championship battle, but how pleased they both were after Saudi Arabia, including Leclerc, who who lost. He was relatively upbeat about having had a, a fun race, an interesting race from his perspective. I think that's really interesting. I think the flip side of it as well is obviously there was great expectation that of course, this would be Lewis Hamilton's second attempt at an eighth world title. Very much further back in the pack, as I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later on. But it it just feels like he's been forgotten so quickly in that fight. And, you know, if he, of course, pops up and starts scoring podiums again, even if he's not really quite in contention, that will change a little bit. But it's gone from not being able to imagine almost him not being there to very suddenly having a very clear glimpse of what the next generation or the current generation in a couple of years, I guess, of Formula One looks like, and it seems pretty fine, I think. And of course, it helps that it's Ferrari as well. I think that's a sort of a universal popular result. Yeah, everyone likes to see that. And obviously, Leclerc, we can cast him as the young upstart because what's he, two or three weeks younger than Max Verstappen? <laughs> so so he, it's not quite the generational battle of last year, but it, it makes for, it, for, an, for an interesting one. But we should say, Mark, that Leclerc has evolved as a driver over the past few years, hasn't he? We've He's always been very, very quick capable of great drives but he's talked about it a little bit this year he he does seem to be that that more rounded driver who 
at least has a chance of being in a title fight and being up to all those challenges and perhaps not falling into the trap of having those odd weekends where things don't quite go right or when he puts it in, in the wall or into another car. Yeah, I, I still think we'll see the odd underlying. There's a He has this amazing ability to put a, a qualifying lap together um, and quite often it's it's based on how he's pushed so hard in the practices and there'll be key corners which he identifies which he just absolutely goes flat out in trying to work out what the absolute limit is and we saw the Bahrain it was turn 11 in Bahrain he, he spun twice they ended up in the gravel trap once in the practices but when you look at his qualifying lap that's where he was making all his time on his teammate that's where he was taking so much time off the Red Bull so I think you will still see, you know, that that sort of high wire approach from him, and inevitably he's going to fall off it sometimes. But I think the more experience he gets, the the better he gets at staying up on it, and it's um it's a very exciting uh, approach, um and it's it's interesting that it's um you can actually already start picking out the differences in approach in driving style between him and Verstappen now they've got roughly equal cars. It's inevitably going to be a question of the different styles of those drivers and who has a moment where things go wrong or go right. And you do wonder if there's a point where those two will clash as well, because it's all kind of fun and games at the moment, but a bit like the Hamilton Verstappen thing, there might come a point where things things go over the line, as they often do when it comes to these sort of championship fights. Uh, well, Michael, we haven't had much chance to talk about Daniel Ricciardo on the podcast across the first two races, so we'll talk about him in depth in a moment but I'd like some advice about him for my grid rival team first because the race has a league on grid rival which is a great fancy motorsport game I'm trying to beat the race f1 podcast regular Scott Mitchell this year as well as at least doing respectably well in our league overall so I need all the help I can get you pick a lineup of five drivers and a team and sign them for a set term of races up to five and although most of my team is set I do have one slot free because I foolishly only signed Valtteri Bottas for two races for fear of Alfa Romeo on reliability. And because those prices fluctuate all the time, Daniel Ricciardo's dropped by £2 million thanks to his point at the start of the season. So that's quite tempting. So do you think I should gamble on him for his home race as he could potentially be a bargain? It's tempting, isn't it? Can I ask who else is in your team, though, before I give you a potentially devastating answer that could have effects for the rest of your season? I see. I like this. Good fact-finding. That means I'm, I know I'm going to get a good answer. I've got Max Verstappen, who's a bit of a banker. Uh, George Russell and the two Haas drivers are in the lineup. Plus, I've got Ferrari as, as my team as well. So, Ricardo would be slotting into that. I need a I need a kind of mid-price or below driver. Yes, I said, wow, it's a really indictment on where Daniel Ricardo is at the moment. Mid-price or below. Look, ordinarily, I'd probably say not, to be honest, if you're signing him for Australia, because Australians don't tend to do so well in Australia. Highest position... A fourth uh, in, at Albert Park. Of course, we'll forget the unpleasantness of 2014. That doesn't count. So I'm not convinced that he's going to be the solution to your troubles. But that said, look, fourth is not so bad. He'll certainly be out doing the hard... Well, probably be out doing the hard... We can't say certainly anymore, can you, with Haas? Who knows how high they're going to finish? But I don't know if he's going to be your safest bet, to be totally honest with you. And I guess I'll hand in my passport now. <laughs> well, I like a nice unbiased, un- unclouded judgment of it. So I-, I need to give that a little bit of of thought. But it might it might only be a one race appointment. So it might be a one of those things you just hope that you'll pull something out of the bag for his uh, for his home race. And we will be following the progress over the year. So I will talk about 
whether I went with Ricardo or if I went elsewhere and see how that impacted my team after the race. But you can download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can join in as you can sign up at any time and you'll find the link in the episode description on this podcast. Talking about Daniel Ricciardo, does he remain as, as big a deal in Australia or has some of that shine been taken off by his struggles since he moved to McLaren? It's a funny thing because there was certainly a, a definite gut punch moment for the entire country at some point last year, midway through last year, let's say, where I think everyone realised that things weren't really getting better. You know, you could go a month, a couple of races, handful of Grand Prix and assume things were going to improve. By the time we got to that mid-season break, I think it had really sunk in for a lot of people and there was a, gen- a general disappointment, collective disappointment. But if you ask anybody now, the only thing they remember is that he won in Italy. And don't ever mention where he finished relative to Lando Norris in the table because he won in Italy. And did Lando Norris win? I don't think Lando Norris won in Italy. That seems to be the general take on Daniel Ricciardo and that's done really really good great wonders even for his reputation considering how difficult the season was overall I don't think anyone is ignoring that but they're really willing themselves to try and forget about it and then of course we've got this year on the basis of the first two two races people are are really desperately looking from signs the impression I've been getting from from the engagement we've been getting online that they're looking for signs that we've got the old Daniel back I think there's a little bit of disheartened, uh, people are disheartened, of course, from what they've seen. And then, of course, we've got this third factor that, that that's going to apply over the course of the next 12 months, and that's the Oscar Piastri factor. And I think that's that's what Daniel's going to be up against, I think, for the affections of Australia, because I've been really impressed with how much people know about him, to be totally honest. He's got a great deal of media coverage. I don't know if that's just because in the last couple of years he's been winning, we've been locked down and people read anything that's put in front of them. And as a result, they've become big fans of him. But that's going to be the next interesting, I guess, challenge in terms of his standing in Australia, assuming, I hope this is a wrong assumption, that he can't get himself into winning machinery in the short term. There is going to be this Oscar Piastri factor in terms of the battle for affections of Australians. And he's even there on McLaren's books as a potential on-loan reserve driver as well. But what do you make of Ricardo's start to the season? Actually, I don't think it's been too bad because... He wasn't too far off Norris in in Jeddah and the strategy didn't play out well for him. And Bahrain, to be fair, he was recovering from COVID. And I don't know whether it was caught on camera at any point, but after the race, um, we saw him before he did his interviews and that kind of thing. He had to have a few minutes sort of sat down, kind of recovering almost from from the race. I know that because I had to sort of clamber over him to get to where I was, <laughs> I was trying, to, <laughs> trying to go, which is the last thing you want when you're trying to relax after a, after a Grand Prix. But it, it doesn't, it doesn't, seem like we really know exactly where Ricardo is shaking out this year yet. No, that's true. And I don't think we can judge him so far on, on either of those. As you say, he's come just literally just recovered from COVID uh, by the time he got in the car for the first race. Missed all that preparation, missed all the, 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 the Bahrain test. Um, it's a tricky car. It's It's got all sorts of troubles. It's uh, had brake overheating. It's got aerodynamic shortfall. Um, so it's a, there's a lot to to get your head around to get used to. Um, it's not at all like the car would have felt in simulation. So yeah, he's starting from you know one place behind immediately. Um, yeah, I, I think um, let, look, let's let's give it a, a few races to give get an accurate picture of where McLaren is really at once it's not running in compromised form. And let's get a few like straightforward weekends out of the way, and then we can get a better reading on it. But at the moment, um, yeah, it's 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 inconclusive. 
I'm willing it. I'm willing it to that we get the old Daniel back because he's he's so good and he's and he's so good for the sport as well and he's such a great guy. So yeah, I think everybody's willing it to happen. But uh, let's let's give it a few races. I guess it's the question, Michael, of whether it's the perfect place to really kick a season into life in Australia or because there's so much pressure on and he's got so much distraction from running around the place doing PR stuff and that kind of thing and giving everybody the, the, the kind of pound of flesh that they have to do in the build-up to the race that it could just all go a little bit wrong. There has always been that that effect, hasn't there? And I think he definitely learned from that in his, his latter Red Bull years, I think, was when those um, press commitments in Australia were at their worst and he sort of took a little bit of a step back from that, but of course has uh, not finished a race since then in Australia. So I don't know whether or not you can draw anything from that. But I do think, not to absolutely fulfil the parochial aspect of this on this podcast, but I, I do think we shouldn't underestimate the effect of going home for Daniel over the summer had, and also the effect that not being able to go home last year and even the year before had on him. This is a guy who never really even wanted to leave Perth to begin with to pursue his racing career until he realised that he might be good at it. Uh, he is, and I think that, I, look, I don't want to judge the good people of Perth, but they are very far away from everyone, so it's hard to be even further away when you do leave. Uh, and, you know, look, I, I can speak from experience as well. He's a good Italian boy too, so the, all of those things play into the fact that he just lacked a little bit of a support network over what was a very difficult year. So, you know, maybe I should go back on that grid rival advice I gave to you. Maybe Australia, in fact, is the perfect race for him to get his first good result in, well, of the season, let's say. Let's ignore Italy, I guess, last weekend. But uh, last year, I beg your pardon. So I think there is something in that. I, I, I think it's not going to, of course, be the silver bullet to all of his problems, but I do think there was... That, that will count for a percentage if this year he's going to get back to being the old Daniel. The fact that he can go home from time to time. <laughs> We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Mark, McLaren's obviously in the lower part of the, the midfield pack, but it's very tightly congested in the first couple of races. So what do you make of the balance of power there, given you can make a case for Alpine, Alfa Romeo and Haas all potentially being the strongest? Yeah, that's true. In fact, um, just when, when I knew we were doing this, I had a little look at the, the qualifying times and did the averages over the two races so far and you know, taking that as a percentage of pole for each each car. The Alpine is the fastest of that group as an average with the fourth fastest car in the field. Its average is 1 minute 30.34. The Alpha is the second fastest, 1 minute 30.37, so literally hundredths of a second. And then the Haas is a tenth behind that. So there's nearly nothing between those three cars so far. Close enough that any difference 
might just be driver performance, but it's, it's it's interesting that the Alpine, while the fastest of the group in Jeddah, was definitely slower than the Haas and the Alpha in Bahrain, which is a higher downforce track. So is its average being skewed a little by just being very quick on the straights? And, we, you know, we've had half the races so far on the very low downforce track, uh, which could be a function of relative lack of downforce. So let's see if it can repeat that sort of form on a ostensibly higher track. But yeah, McLaren is definitely a step behind. Alpha Tauri and McLaren, both a step behind those three cars so far. And then another step behind those are the, the Aston and the Williams. So that's how it's uh, stacked after two races. Yeah, it's quite interestingly poised there. And it was interesting that Norris was able to really put the pressure on Ocon in the closing stages of the race in Jeddah. But that was also slightly distorted by the, the way the race panned out. But I'm interested to see how Haas do because... Kevin Magnussen, by his own admission in Jeddah, wasn't quite at the maximum of the car because it's because of his fitness. I think he said his, his neck was breaking in, in qualifying, given the, uh, the the fact that he wasn't quite uh, fully F1 race sharp. He's had a couple of races now and a little bit of time to gather himself. So hopefully we'll see him able to get the, the, the best out of himself uh, in the coming races. But Michael, let's get on to the team that isn't in the midfield or at the front, which is Mercedes, because one thing we're not going to see is a Mercedes on pole position this weekend, barring some dramatic turnaround, I guess, never say never. And I think we've seen that in every Australian Grand Prix, haven't we, in the in the V6 Turbo Hybrid era. So how surprised have you been by the struggles Mercedes have had? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you know, unprecedented levels or, or lengths of dominance, I suppose, through in particular regulation changes. So by the time we got to this year, and I know these are the biggest in, in generations, but we sort of assumed that they, they had it covered. And maybe we shouldn't assume that they don't. Maybe it is really a matter of just unlocking the, the speed as they seem to over the last couple of weeks insisted that is there once they can run that car low enough to, to find it. But it's just been a surprise, and, and maybe it's just the, the shock of seeing a, a car we're so accustomed to being completely unproblematically at the front, almost always being mired in the midfield. And I feel like Saudi was, as much as Bahrain was obviously very difficult for them until Lewis Hamilton found himself on the podium, of course, the fact that experimentation was being undertaken in the lead into qualifying that, of course, left Lewis so far back and, and had the race that he ended up having just sort of underlines, I think, a Mercedes we've never really seen before. I mean, they've had they've been prone to the odd race that they haven't been able to nail and often have been able to predict those races as well, whereas now it just seems like for the first time in this era, they don't really know what's going on. And I think that is the the challenge for them now is is finding themselves in in that position and trying to figure out how to work their way back without, of course, the history of understanding of a, a series of related generations of car. It is a blank slate and this is a bigger test for them as they've they've ever had. So it's been really interesting to observe so far. Yeah, Mark, what do you expect in terms of the progress they can make in, in the short term? We know we're going to see over the coming races some tweaks in terms of the floor as they try and get things working. And the hope is that for them, from their perspective, that there will be this light switch moment where suddenly the car works and there's just armfuls of performance that just suddenly get unleashed. But the kind of longer it takes to get to that, the more fanciful that almost looks, doesn't it? And it, it could be quite a long road back for them. I think it probably is. Um, I, I think what we're going to see in Australia is um, a, a little bit of a bandage, a, a bandage on the um, on the, on the problem in, in terms of they've got a new wing coming there, which would be less draggy than um, relative to the downforce demands of the track than what they've had so far. Um, but did, 
they, they only need that because the floor's not working as it's supposed to be working. And so in the two races so far, they haven't even been able to um, adapt the car in the most efficient way to that problem because they ideally needed lower lower downforce wings than they had available to them than they were, than were ready in, in, at both those circuits. Um, they would have preferred to have used the, the low downforce Jeddah wing in Bahrain, but it, it, it wasn't ready at that stage. They got it ready just in time for Jeddah. And once they got it on the car, they realized that they needed a lower downforce version even than that, which wasn't available. The the wing which they'll have in Melbourne will be a new one um, with a uh, probably a, a much narrower main plane. So they're expecting that to be at least... It, it, the, if you're trying to get the the car away from that porpoising threshold, where 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 the the floor just essentially is running too too close to the ground at the back, obviously the less downforce you have on the car and as it gets pressed down at speed, the the, the better because you're you're keeping it away from from that threshold. Um, the what they've had to do in the first two races is increase the ride height, which is a very inefficient way of doing it because you're dumping the downforce but you're not getting any benefit in a lower drag where at least if you're putting a, a low downforce wing on you're dumping the downforce but you're also getting the benefit of lower drag so it, it should help them a little bit but it's not the solution it's just a, as i say a band-aid to the, the basic problem and i think um they're going to be looking at uh, probably a floor design and maybe some you know, looking at how the suspension's working, and there's, there's there's a lot of a lot of quite involved. It's a hugely complex problem, and and more so because it's not affecting any two cars in, in the same way. Um, but it's uh, it's it's impossible for them to know where they stand to Red Bull and Ferrari, and until they get to that basic level where the car's behaving itself. Only then will we really see is this a good car or not a good car. Yeah, and I imagine if you ask every team up and down the field, they'll say there's a load of performance that they can unlock if they're not having to compromise a bit on ride height and that kind of thing, as everyone's got little bits and pieces uh, that they have to have to compromise on to, to deal with this. But one thing that's interesting, Michael, you were sort of saying it's it's different to see the team struggling like this, but even things like that low downforce rear wing, the one they had in Jeddah, all that really was was a cut-and-shut version of the Bahrain one and, and the sort of full-blown assembly isn't ready yet. It, it does seem... Like maybe there's a little bit of a hangover from last year, doesn't it? Potentially, I know it's easy to say that just because they're struggling, they could have struggled regardless of that. But you do just wonder if they were just fighting on too many fronts, especially with the fact they had to work quite hard last year to make the car work. I was going to say there was an irony in that, considering that the story last year was that Red Bull was pushing too hard, weren't they? That they seemed to be bringing major updates later in the year. I think at the end it was probably pretty close between them, but that certainly seemed to be the way it was last year and. Yeah, and you, you can't, I guess, remove that either from the restrictions that have come in this year as well. They're really, we're really starting to feel the effect of the, the downsizing required for the, the cost controls and then also the fact that they really need to think about the updates they're bringing more than they perhaps would have in the past when they could have thrown everything at the car. I remember what year was it in, in Monaco where they were struggling with that diva of a car as they described it and worked essentially around the clock for two weeks and, and figured it out. Not all those options are available to be pulled anymore, I suppose. Yeah, that's a good point. And of course, the... Um the more time and money they spend on doing things like new wings to alleviate the problem, the, the less less budgets available to invest in the proper solution, you know, the full solution. And time is ticking by, and um, those, the other two teams are racking up the points. So, yeah, it's 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 a very very tricky equation. 
And of course, the problem is while you're troubleshooting, others are just continuing on their their development path. I was going to say Serene, but it's not never quite that simple <laughs> in Formula One. But there is that that effect of while you're sorting yourself out, others are just finding more progress and going in the in the right direction. So there's still time for Mercedes to get back into this, but that time's going to run out pretty quickly because they'll fall too far behind to be uh, to be a championship threat. So. Yeah, they can maybe get away with a few more races of struggling, but if it goes much beyond that, then it's going to be more a, a season of trying to get some wins later on and, and see what they can salvage. Well, thanks very much to Mark Hughes and Michael Laminato for your insight. Do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read there. And also check out some of our sister podcasts, including our IndyCar and MotoGP podcasts. And also take a look at our YouTube channel if video is your thing. We're going to turn our attention properly to Australia now. Hopefully the race will go ahead as planned this time. And we'll be back soon with everything you need to know from Melbourne. The Athletic.